Welcome to BitFaced. Never recorded in Hilton Head, South Carolina, but we're going to do that today. We're trying out some new gear here. When I look back at 2018 on BitFaced and everything that we did this year, it was definitely the best year we've ever had. And that's thanks to all of you that are listening. So I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed everything we did at Colorado Springs Comic Con. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Ed Greenwood. I hope you enjoyed everything that we did this year. And if you didn't, you certainly let us know about it. But as I looked back on the year, there was something that was missing and something that's happened every year since I started doing a podcast from when we had the Yeti microphone on top of a cardboard box. This guest was there when we moved the studio to the BitCave Now this guest was there. In fact, this person, I think, is the only person that's recorded with us every year. And even though it's December 27th, <laughs> we're going to get it in this year. He's one of my favorite people in the world, but of course, he's one of the reasons I'm in this world, one of two. <laughs> so I'm going to do an episode today with my favorite guest to have on the podcast. And yes, that includes Carl Weathers, my dad, Dr. Greg Hollis. I would say welcome to the Bit Cave, but this is your Bit Cave. So... <laughs> So uh, welcome to my bit cave then. We're we're in uh, we're in your bit cave today, and thank you so much for joining me and recording with me. These episodes are awesome for me, and I think it's something that in the future, as you know, you and I will both not be here forever. But this is something that I can always look back on, and something that I have, and that's really important to me. Well, and for me too, Eric. It's it's always obviously good to see you, but to be able to share this aspect of where you are in your life is real exciting for me as well. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. So you and I have talked about video games. We talked about movies. We've talked about music. We're going to get a little bit more specific today, and we're going to talk about television, but we're not going to talk about television in general. We're going to talk about a television show that's very important to both of us, I would say, that has influenced both of us in, in very different ways, a show that you watched when it was first on that I didn't get attracted to until later, till I was in college, but I, I think it's a show that defines us, and I think it's also a show that defines television. So not only important to us, but important to television in general, the show that I'm speaking about is MASH. And uh, I think you're right. I think the influence, it's, it's one of the, I mean, there's a lot of shows that I can quote and almost do the dialogue from by heart, but that's probably the one that I can do it from the best. And it's a show that I have watched consistently, both when it first aired back in the 70s to the reruns that still run today. And the episodes still have a meaning and I still react to them, sometimes in a slightly different way because I've grown over these years and yet the show you know, doesn't change. The only thing that changes is our reaction to it. And I think that's what I find true for me. Now, on paper back when the show came out, this is something that shouldn't have worked. How often do we get a movie that gets turned into a television show and the television show is more successful than the movie? Yeah, that's, that's a rarity in the, in, the, uh, in the entertainment business. And it, the reason I think it became so successful is because the writers, the directors, those involved in it, including the actors, decided that they wanted to do something completely different than what the movie represented. And they had to fight to do that with the studios. The studios and the network were not for their 
interpretation of the new mash like they wanted to see it put on air. And yet, uh, you know, Gelbart, Metcalf, uh, Alda, all those people involved in it said, wait a minute, this is different. We're not going to do the same thing. It's not going to be just slapstick you know, comedy. We're going to take some issues. And the network was reluctant to do that because they wanted this to be a comedy. And to be fair, Robert Altman's movie is brilliant. It is a, a straight comedy, though. There are some sociopolitical issues and things that get brought up. When you look at the movie, and that's a good place to start, the movie is the most non-sequitured film I've ever seen. I went to film school, and you learn that Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, everything works with a structure. MASH does not. It does have a beginning, middle, and an end, but they don't win in the end. Um, I think in the end of the movie, doesn't does Hawkeye or Trapper go home? Or... There, there is an ending. There is an ending, but it's it's very subtle, and it's not. It, you don't get any kind of conclusive information, you know, from the movie itself. Right, and the characters are played brilliantly by Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland. But you could almost argue that when you look at Donald Sutherland's Hawkeye, it's a very one note portrayal, and I'm not insulting Mr. Sutherland's performance at all. After you've seen what Alan Alda does with the character. To be fair, though, Alan Alda had 11 years to develop that character. But even in the first season of MASH, it's not like a lot of shows where it takes eight episodes to get the the ball going. Alda's got that character down. From the second you see him, he is Hawkeye Pierce. Well, exactly. And I think part of it is is when they changed the direction of, of what the character Hawkeye was going to be as this kind of womanizer, kind of non-serious person, which is the part that, uh, that Sutherland played, Alden took that to heart. And, and, and when he had his conversations with Gelbart, it was like, you know, Alan, I want this to be a different Hawkeye. Same basic characterizations, but we're not going to do it that way. And I think Hawkeye was well up to the task. I think he had read the the, the initial script, the pilot, and said, yeah, I can do this, and, and we can make this not necessarily better, because I don't think he thought it in terms of those ways. He said, but at least different. They didn't want to have a repetitive, just a cookie cutter of what the movie was. I don't think you can do Hawkeye in 2018's Me Too generation, and I'm not going to get political here. I don't think you have a main character, and I wouldn't call Hawkeye a sexist, but he's definitely a womanizer, especially in the first few years of the series. I mean, can you name a nurse besides Kelly that he didn't <laughs> hook up with? Or And if it wasn't him, it was, it was Trapper. And, but I like that aspect of his character. I like the fact that he's flawed. I mean, for all purposes, Hawkeye's an alcoholic, and never... That never changes. It's not like Hawkeye cleans up. In fact, Hawkeye leaves Korea worse than when he got there. There is no redemption for Hawkeye Pierce. He's a broken, hurt man who I assume, after the end of the series, goes home to live with his father for a little while. I know that they did after MASH, and I don't know if you ever saw it. I refuse to watch it because I've heard it's horrible, and you've told me that it's horrible. Does he, do we ever get to hear anything again? Or is the last time we see Hawkeye Pierce going up in the helicopter and that's it, correct? I think in the aftermath, they, they, they make a, a, an allusion to him as being in Maine and practicing surgery. But that's it. I don't think there's any more in aftermath other than a name. He certainly does not appear on the show or anything like that. I think the only ones were Mulcahy, Potter, uh, Klinger, and Radar. No, not even yeah, no, not even radar. I don't think. I think it was just Klinger, Potter, and Mulcahy. 
But but you're right. Hawkeye left that show more damaged than when he got there. And not that he was damaged that much when he got there. I think he had some flaws. And, and certainly he was probably drinking quite heavily through medical school would be my guess. And maybe even before that. But yeah, he was he was damaged. A lot of the actors or the characters from that from that show left damaged. They they didn't come out, you know, that that much better off than when they went in. And and, and they probably would be the only character that I can think of that starts in a worse place than he ends up. But even Klinger stays in Korea for love. And I think the only reason Klinger is better is because of Sung Hee, because he meets her and that changes his life for for the better and like you mentioned the other night Klinger's character changes a little bit not the portrayal of the character but Klinger basically becomes Radar there's when Radar leaves the show Klinger becomes the company clerk and then you quit seeing the dresses and you quit seeing Klinger becomes a more serious character and I think you have to to do that with him but no when you think about Charles Houlihan BJ Hawkeye Colonel Colonel Potter might leave a little bit better than than when he got there but Colonel Potter also shows up as the the war veteran, the one that's done this before. This is not Colonel Potter's first dance. But even Potter goes through a lot as the series goes on. And you, and you've got to remember the Potter character is someone who's gone through three wars. He has seen this from a young teenager riding on the back of a horse to going through World War One uh, as that, uh, World War Two, and then now the Korean War, and. And that's not easy for any person to deal with. I don't care what field you're in. To go through three major, major wars, two of them as a physician, was tough. And, and I think he walked away from that thinking, you know, my God, is this going to happen again? And I think that was probably, you know, he said, I may be too old for it, but am I going to have to deal with this in my civilian life and have to reflect on you know what had happened and what's going to happen in future events. And we know you know historically we go through an awful lot after the Korean War. We do, and we mentioned that movies often don't translate to good television. Also, in the realm of television, changing the cast never works out for the better. Mash is also an exception in that department. Not that the McLean Stevenson and the Wayne Rogers, uh, Larry Linville years is what I'll call them, which go through season five. Technically, that's when Frank leaves. Not that they're bad. There's a lot of my favorite episodes are in those first five years. But you replace Trapper with BJ, someone you, you can relate to more. And arguably, Mike Farrell's a little bit better actor than Wayne Rogers is, or at least brings a little bit more gravitas to the emotion of the performance. You upgrade Henry, who's kind of a buffoon, a lovable buffoon, but a buffoon, to regular army Colonel Potter. And then the greatest transition for me is you take Frank, the ultimate whipping boy, a terrible surgeon, and I think that's one of the reasons they don't respect Frank is because he's terrible at his job, also that he's regular army, of course, and you replace him with someone who's not regular army but is the best surgeon in the 4077, so Hawkeye and BJ have to respect Charles. And not only that, but the competition changes because Henry was no competition for Hawkeye. Potter is. Uh, Frank was no competition for Hawkeye in any area. Charles is in many areas. 
you know, Charles is much more sensitive many times to what Hawkeye is or is represented, you know, on the screen. And that makes a big difference. And so you see these characters having to modify themselves. Not only do the, the actors change, but the writing changed. The directors changed. I mean, Hawkeye came in to do this because he had more familiarity with the show than just about anybody after Gelbart left and the thing started to transition. And so the continuity, in order to keep some of that, which a lot of shows don't, especially ones that are on more than four or five, six years. This was on 11 years. You got to remember, too, this was only 20 or something, 25 years after the actual Korean War. 20 years, actually. 20 years, 20 years after the actual Korean War. And now we're showing this about the Korean War, but ostensibly about the Vietnam War. Right. It was a commentary on, on Vietnam because, I mean, the show lasted longer than the Korean War did, correct? Yes. Yeah, the Korean War was only three years. And, and the show was on for 11, which, again, correct me if I'm wrong, that not, not unheard of back then, but that's a long time for a television show to run, and between decades. Exactly. For it to transcend over several decades, you know, makes a whole lot of difference. And for the shows to maintain, like you said, there was no continuity. Every show was a show in itself. The only timeline they found it, they followed was a Christmas, New Year's, you know, kind of thing. In spring, summer, fall, and that type. That was it. These shows, you know, there's a couple of their, you know, two-parters, but for the most part, every show was its own separate little, you know, entity. And that, I think, is what made it so interesting is that they were able to do that. And the laugh track was something that you had to have at the time, studio dictated. And it's the only thing sometimes I wish wasn't in the show because I know where the jokes are. It, and I think it's one thing that dates the show as well. I also have read that Alan Alda did not want it at all. And the episodes, I think we get three of them that don't have the laugh track, were all mandated by him because they're not the earlier ones. It's when, like you said, Alden kind of gets control of the show. Not completely, but you see in the later years that Alda and Farrell and uh, I want to say even Winchester, um, Dave, uh, David Ogden Stiers, they get to direct he uses his power to, okay, I'm going to teach. I, even Gary Berghoff, I think, uh, has a couple episodes under his belt. Harry Morgan as well. And Harry Morgan's a seasoned actor. He'd been around and doing TV and movies and stage forever. And so I, I like that he gave his his castmates a chance to expand their horizons in the show and kind of put their own uh, their own stamp on it, if you will. I want to say Margaret maybe is the only one that didn't direct, and probably because Loretta Swift didn't want to. I think that's right. I think Margaret preferred the the role that she had as the character and not to get involved in the the more technical behind-the-scenes kinds of, of roles that people have to take. When you look at Margaret, though, I don't think there's been a female character on television since then that has had not only her arc, but her power. I think for, for the, the Hulan character and the way Loretta Swift played it was amazing. And I think it did bring a certain feel to television for a woman that we had never seen before as as a strong person as a person who had ideas as someone that was smart and and had the sexiness as well but margaret was brilliant absolutely brilliant. and she was she was this forceful cement that when hawkeye was kind of tearing things apart because of his attitude and and his 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 ego and his drinking margaret was one of those people to help bring that back together and stabilize i think the entire mash group yeah, and she is also very one-note in the movie. I mean, Margaret's the slut. Loretta Swit takes that, and I guess the first couple seasons, Margaret is kind of Frank's foil. 
and she's involved in that. Once Frank leaves, that's when Margaret really kind of becomes her own character. And even though she gets married twice in the show, she's not defined by who she's married to. For her, it's a power play. She's marrying up in the military. That's that's how she does things. And yeah, and I think you don't ever see Hawkeye or BJ disrespect her as a doctor. Granted, I know she's a nurse, but she's in there with them and she's in charge of that. And I don't think, and again, you've been in a mass unit. I never have. I don't think meatball surgery works if you don't have Margaret running that triage and making sure everything is, is clockwork, correct? There always has to be somebody in that role to do that, to keep the, the OR organized, to keep things where they need to be, to keep the staff and the nurses. You're talking about people that were working 12, 18, sometimes 24-hour days. The, the, the shows that they show them doing surgery and drinking orange juice, that was done during those periods of time. I mean, they, they did work those periods of time. The, the turnover rate in mass units was horrendous. I mean, these people would burn out after two and three months because it was so, so strenuous to be under those kinds of conditions, being that close to what was going on and just seeing the hundreds of thousands. You're talking about a, an organization that had a 95% success rate, and they mentioned that on the show several times. That's a fact. You know, if you made it the first, you know, a uh, couple of hours after being in a mass unit, you were probably going to survive. That was unheard of, especially 50s. We didn't have a lot of the medical procedures that we have today. We didn't have the, the medicines that we have. And these guys were on the cutting edge of doing some things that had not been done before. And Richard Hooker was also a medical doctor in Korea, correct? He so was. The original no one ever mentions the book. Everyone mentions the movie. Everyone mentions the television show. But these characters were created in a novel called MASH by Richard Hooker. He was a doctor, just like you are. He That's where the stories come from. And the and by the way, the asterisks were added by Hollywood. Those are not in the original book. Right, correct. I actually, I actually have the book and have read it once. And I, I can understand why it doesn't get the same respect as the film and as the television show does. But it is. The origins are all in there. The character of Hawkeye Pierce is in there, who I assume is probably based on a real person. It's based actually it's based on Hooker himself. Okay. But he didn't like the way it ended up being portrayed by by Hollywood or even, you know, television or movie, because he said he's not that way. He was not an alcoholic womanizer and he, he objected to that idea. He understood maybe why Hollywood did it, but that's not how, how he saw himself when he wrote the book. I think you have to make Hawkeye that flawed character, though, and uh, the womanizing and definitely the alcoholism, they hurt him as a character, and maybe he's not the best surgeon that he can be. In fact, I do remember an episode where Hawkeye goes into surgery, I wouldn't say drunk, but a little hungover, and it's it's kind of a coming-to-God moment between Potter and himself, like, look, you you're not a, you can't do that, dude. You, you have to respect the operating room. To be fair, though, you understand why Hawkeye's drinking. You understand why. I mean, those are his only outlets in Korea. I mean, you see with all the technology we have today, it's unfathomable. But, I mean, they get excited to get a newspaper from home. They get excited to see anything from home. I think we take that for granted that, you know, they have Korean radio over there. That I mean, they had to entertain 
themselves. Anyone would go nuts. And that and that's one of the things that they had to do on the television series. They had to compact the time more because it took much longer for things to happen. The, the alcohol was not that available like they show on the TV shows. It just wasn't there. They may have been one or two stills, but you know, in fact, that's how Potter got his Purple Heart. Remember, it still blew up. Right. <laughs> that was my first Purple Heart. Uh, the, the episode you're referring to with, with that terrible flaw and Hawkeye shows up to the ER and having to leave the OR hung over was when he had sent radar and radar got got shot and 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 got you know injured and hawkeye you know watched this kid that i think he identified maybe kind of like a son maybe kind of like a younger brother but certainly a part of his extended family that he didn't have and he took responsibility for the injury that happened to hawk despite the fact that people were injured dying all around him Radar is the one that I think, you know, touched him. That and that friend of his who who died, sometimes you hear the bullet. You know, that that I think those reached into Hawkeye's guts more so than than any, you know, of the other episodes. And I mean, he goes nuts, for lack of a better term, in Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen. Hawkeye goes crazy. Now, I, I think he's mentally stable when he leaves Korea at least you know I think he can get back to Crabapple Cove and I think I hope everything worked out with him and his his father but Hawkeye is a damaged character and every single episode you see where something like that happens with radar or sometimes you hear the bullet that affects him I like that I like that the character didn't you know they didn't leave like oh hey you know we're going home to America there is some celebration there there's also some sadness that all of those characters know that that's probably the last time they're going to see each other. And when you go through something like that with people, they become your family. Exactly. And, and they, they, they talk about that when they do the, the interviews with the, with the reporter, uh, on, when they do it in black and white. you got to remember, too, this was, all, this was all done on film, not tape which is what gives it the effect that you see on screen. That's powerful to watch a TV show that long being uh, done on film rather than tape gives it a whole different perspective with, re- what, with regard to what they could do. And the black and white scenes when they're being interviewed, they talk about that. You know, these are the Potter even says, I've been through all this. These are the best bunch of people I've ever worked with in my entire life. Uh, they all talk about missing them and and hoping that they get to see him again. We don't know if that happens. My guess is it probably didn't because they were on opposite sides of the globe and, and all over the place. You know, Claren was still in Korea and Hawkeye was on one coast and BJ was on the other and and this type of thing. So they suffered that loss as well because that ability to share and and we know you know by research that the ability to share post war experiences is crucial to getting yourself reengaged into the. Uh, into the public domain, getting yourself back into your normal day-to-day routine. Talk to me a little bit about what the world was like when the show came out. I was not alive. So, and I did not, the first time I, I mean, obviously I saw the show growing up in in your home, Uh, but I didn't, you and I didn't bond over it and it didn't have the impact until I'll argue that I went off to college and Amit and I started watching episodes, and then the show started to make sense to me, and then I started to understand it. But what was it like when the show came out? Was it well-received? Was it not well-received? Did it take some time to, to breathe? I think in the, in the uh, regime of critics and that type of thing, it was considered horrible. I think it was panned. I think they thought it was terrible. They said, you know, I think the first year was one of the worst TV shows on television, even though I think it was like 46, so it wasn't, you know, all that bad. 
but people responded to it because they knew that they could watch this 30 minutes and not only would they laugh, but they would cry. And those are two difficult emotions to, to evoke from a single 30-minute or 20 minutes show. Those are difficult to do. And MASH did it almost every single week because while they had a basic storyline, they had two or three underlying storylines. And sometimes the underlying storylines were even more powerful than the major one. That was significant. Vietnam War was going on. We were at the height of the Tet Offensive. It's, they talk about the, the big push on the MASH show. That was basically what happened during the Tet Offensive with thousands upon thousands of eyes. The, the one doctor that, you know, that kind of goes crazy comes. He's talking about the, the Pusam, you know, that, that thing. That was going on during the Tet Offensive. And those are the kinds of, you know, he talks about them being stacked up like cordwood. That's a fact. That did happen in Vietnam. And so to see this portrayed on television, while at the same time I was watching on the news the very same shots that you see, the helicopters, different helicopters, but still carrying those wounded soldiers and those dead soldiers back, you know, behind our, you know, to the, uh, you know, to the lines. That was real because Vietnam opened up this idea that we can have this stuff instantly within hours on the air. Didn't happen in World War II people, the public had never seen anything like this. Didn't happen in Korean War either. It took days and days for this to happen. We were seeing this instantly because reporters were not only in the field, and they were in the field for these other wars, but they didn't have the trans, the television transmission capabilities that, that, to, that they had during Vietnam. So this was a real thing that came into people's living rooms every single night. And to see MASH take that and present it in such a way that, hey, this is hard, but we can live with it. And we'll get through it. And I think MASH provided a sense of hope. I, I think anyway. I think there was a sense of hope that, because it was scary. It was scary for a you know 18, 19 year old kid, you know, 20 year old kid, which is what I was, knowing what was going on over there and knowing that, you know, I might become a part of that or, you know, a casualty of that. I mean, that's and, and it just went on for so long. Now you were in the Air Force at that time, correct? Were you already Enlisted? No, no, I was. I didn't go into the Air Force until 1972. Vietnam War was on its way to being completed, but you know, I had a draft number of 11. They did the draft numbers on television. They pulled out a day of the year and they pulled out a number, and whatever number that was, mine was 11. Well, 11, yeah, <laughs> and and I was a, I just started college, so. You know, my thinking was, well, you know, if I'm going to have to serve, I'm going to have to serve. That's fine. But I think I'd rather do it as an officer, uh, you know, than as, uh, you know, and, and to see what my possibilities are. So I, you know, enrolled in ROTC. And a lot of people did at that time. A lot of people didn't. A lot of people took off for Canada. A lot of people left the country and said, I don't want part of this. Patriotism is one of those things that you can't teach people. It's either instilled in them or it's not. And and so I think we saw a lot of that with, you know, the the, the riding in the streets. You're going to remember, I came up out of an era of three significant people getting assassinated within the same year. Kennedy's you know. and Martin Luther King, correct? Exactly. And, and so that was the year I graduated from high school. So the violence that was going on, you know, I said the race, the race you know, violence that was going on was incredible. And now you have a Vietnam War as well with you know, tens of thousands in a war that a lot of people here in the United States didn't understand. And, and so they struggle with that. 
MASH, I think, helped people to try to see not only the senselessness of some things, but also the necessity for it. I don't think it was written as an anti-war thing. I think it was written as a testimony to what was going on and what can we do to help us deal with things like this? Because I think the people then recognized that even when Vietnam ended, that there was always going to be something else. I mean, if you look at the history of mankind, there's always going to be another conflict. And of course, we've seen that. Now, did you know you wanted to be a doctor before MASH? Or for the audience, you're a psychologist. Right. I'm, I, I have a PhD in psychology, and I have a postdoctoral fellowship in neuropsychology. No, I became interested in becoming a, in, into the medical field when I was like 15 years old, 16 years old, and I worked as an as a orderly in a hospital. I started out as an orderly in a, in a hospital, emptying bedpans, you know, doing this type of thing. But I got exposed to the psychiatric ward while I was there, and I thought, this is what I want to do. And so my direction after that was not medical school per se, but was psychology. And so that's kind of the road that I, you know, drifted down as I. Uh, yeah, I didn't mean medical school. Like, you know what I meant. I didn't mean like. And I was never in a MASH unit, too, just to clarify something else you said. Oh, before. I thought that you had worked with a MASH unit. No, I consulted with, you know, medical units, but not, I was not assigned in a forward, you know, MASH unit. You got to remember, there's only five of those MASH units in Korea. Okay. So there's only five of them. And they had somewhere between 200 and 300 people assigned to them. It wasn't 45 people. I mean, it, you know, if, if you look at the reality of what a real mash unit was in Korea, it's different than how it's portrayed. But you can't have 200 people on a set. <laughs> it get way too crowded. Now, are you already a psychologist when you're introduced to the character of Dr. Sidney Friedman? No. Uh, I was introduced to Sidney Friedman. I would have been uh, starting my senior year of college because it would have been in the 70s and I graduated in 72 but I had I was finishing up and having my degree in psychology so certainly he was you know an influence but also that during that same time when I was being groomed we had Sydney we had Bob Newhart uh, from his TV show there was a number plus doctors on television were you know doctors in war were very popular for a period of time and then I think MASH helped to develop a character like Quincy, for example, to be kind of a hardened, you know, more gruff kind of a character rather than, you know, Dr. Kildare or, you know, uh, uh, some of the doctors, Ben Casey and that type of thing. These were different kinds of doctors. They, they, they were more, I guess, human doctors. Maybe that's, and, and I think MASH tried to do that is to present the humanness because you're talking about, you know, a show where the enemy is war and the hero is human resiliency. And to me, that was the two clashes that happened in MASH. And, and Hawkeye talks about that many times when he's trying to save a person. You can't have him yet. He's mine. You know, that type of thing. I, and, and that resiliency against death and war became the counterpoints, I think, for MASH. And I think it became the counterpoints in a lot of people's lives, not just because of the war aspect, but just in general. The, the riots going on, this going on, this going on, things happening here, political aspects. I mean, all of this stuff came together. And people could go to MASH and watch that show for 30 minutes and, like I said before, could have some sense of hope. And I think that's important. And that era of television, I think probably starting with All in the Family, that changed 
the way television was looked at. When I go back, uh, or at least when I did go back in high school to some of the Nick at Night shows, your Donna Reeds, your things like that, uh, Leave it to Beaver, it's really fake, and it's really wholesome, and it's really not enjoyable for someone like myself. MASH has stakes, and we'll talk in a, a little bit about our favorite episodes, but one scene that always sticks with me is when Hawkeye does the appendectomy to keep the general from taking the troops up the hill. And BJ says to him, you mess with a live body, that is mutilation. And you think, okay, Hawkeye's going to come to his senses and he's not going to do it. And Hawkeye walks into the swamp covered with blood and you know that he did do it. And I think that's a moment that's one of my favorite episodes because they finally showed me a character that was flawed. Hawkeye makes mistakes. He's the best surgeon there arguably, maybe until Charles gets there, and then it's it's probably head-to-head. But to see a character like that fail, BJ cheats on his wife. He does nothing but talk about how great Peg and his daughter are, and he's unfaithful. These are characters that aren't perfect. And I don't think that television worked like that before something like MASH came along. No, I, I think you're right. And, and, and the thing is, is, you know, when television, you know, was early in the 50s, you know, Lucy, Donnie, all those shows in the 50s and 60s, it was important that television present itself as happy. It was the idea out coming out of Hollywood. It's an escape and people don't want to see all the bad things. They want to feel good when they walk away. Uh, as you get into, you know, all in the family, I mean, that showed the the, the, the racist side of people that, you know, we're not these happy go lucky wearing pearls in a dress all day long to cook dinner and coming home with a briefcase and, and that type of thing that we saw on those shows or sometimes not even know what people did for a living. You know, I mean, you, the father would go away, but you never really know. He just went to the office. Uh, Mash said, no, wait a minute. And, and I think Gelbart was, was a big part of that. And Metcalf after that to say, you know, there's more to it than this. You know, uh, Gelbart actually went to Korea and spent, months over there talking to the local people talking to military people who had stayed there and that type of thing just to get a feel for this talking to the doc he actually did this and his research is you know brilliant with regard to how he gathered information so he could feel these people firsthand I, you and I watch a lot of television together and we did growing up and you always are one of the first people to point out inaccuracies especially in medical shows to me or in any show you're that gun doesn't hold that many bullets. There's no way that car would drive like that. I don't remember you ever bringing up a lot of things about MASH. Is the show really that research to where, I'm not going to say everything's perfect, but is it pretty realistic? Is that what you would see during that time frame in an operating room in Korea? Probably. The thing is, is if, if their unit was actually three miles from the front, they wouldn't be transporting those people by helicopters. <laughs> Unless they, I mean, they would have them in... They did use the buses, the modified buses. They did use the, the, the modified ambulances. They did use a variety of different things. The helicopter, not quite the same helicopter, but pretty close. Uh, you know, that type of thing. But you're right. Three miles from the front, which they always talked about, those people would be transported by, you know, by, by buses or ambulances or that type. They wouldn't be transported by helicopters. Helicopters were further back just because of, you know, the cost of them and, and the, the risk involved and, and that type of thing. I think... More or less, the accuracy was good. You know, I mean, the <laughs> the first car I ever learned to drive was one of the fold-down windshield Jeeps that they have there. And I've always wanted one of those things. I mean, they, they had them there. Uh, you got to remember, this was a show that was filmed outside 
a lot of it. You know, they didn't have the, because they couldn't do it. They couldn't, you know, and Gelbar said, I want helicopters. I want trucks. I want ambulances. I want tanks. I want all this. Well, you can't do that inside the sound studios back then. Now, I think they're a lot different. So a lot of this was filmed at that set, the same set the movie was based on. And that's one of the things that was appealing to CBS is, well, we don't have to pay any money. We've already got the set built. That was appealing to them. You know, think, yeah, you know, we've already got some of this. We've got some of this, you know, and, and, and we can do this relatively inexpensively. So why not? Because many of the networks want to know part of it. Now, was everything shot outside or when we see the swamp and the ER, that's all on a That's all inside. Stage, the, 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 the OR, the swamp, all that stuff isn't here. But anytime you see those outside shots of the helicopter, you know, landing and them up on a thing, that was all done at that Fox studio out in the, out in the desert. And please, again, correct me if I'm wrong. That's all Vasquez Rocks area, the same place they shot Star Trek, where Kirk's fighting the Gorn on a cliff. There's a lot of things that were shot in the same area same, of California. Same general area, right? right? Same general area of Southern California because of and and again, even I don't think Korea even has mountains like that. They could have. <laughs> I was uh, that. talking to people, and I said I was, you know, I was just an infant, you know, during Korea. I always heard that it, it's the coldest place in winter and the hottest place in summer. And the people coming there by boat, they said you could smell it before you got there. And I've talked to people who were in the Korean War, and they said it was. I mean, so that depiction of it, temperature extremes, uh, and just the, the stench. Because they talk about the stench sometimes. They do. Uh, they talk about the smell. And smell is a powerful, powerful part that we don't get. You know, we can get the visuals. They can CG all this stuff nowadays. Smell is one of the most powerful triggers that we have. And, uh, and that's hard, you know. I mean, I know they've tried smell of vision I don't think it's worked too well. But... But that's part of that, you know, that experience that we all have that they're not able to duplicate. So they have to go to the other, you know. I mean, a lot of those backdrops that you see on MASH are painted because they're not. It's right. Exactly. Because they're in a they're in a studio. They can't do them otherwise. Uh, But but those actors suffered through that. They suffered with the the flies and everything else outside the heat, you know, walking around on on, you know, unstable ground, uh, you know, that type of thing. That was, you know, gurneys, you know, they didn't have gurneys back then because you couldn't wheel those things around the OR. They were carried on stretchers. So, you know, when they have the gurney races and I'm thinking, yeah, okay, but that's okay. A certain license is allowed. Now, what about some of the medical things? I know you're not a medical doctor, but is that pretty realistic? Yeah, can, did, can Hawkeye do open heart massage and save someone's yeah, life? Did, D- Dishel was pretty good. Walter Dishel, who was the, the medical consultant to MASH, was really good about that. And and, and Gelbart and, and post-Gelbart, they were real, it was real important to them that they establish that authenticity with regard to the to the medical. In fact, one of the, they mentioned one of the guys who actually wrote, you know, people have submitted ideas and some of them were Korean War and, and they mentioned Vester. Vester was one of the guys, they mentioned one of his papers in there. He submitted three or three or four, you know, ideas for things. I think they were paid like two three hundred dollars for their idea uh, because of that. So I think that accuracy was there because I think a lot of people started watching that and said, no, wait a minute. We did this this way. Why don't I, you know, I, so they'd, they'd write like a little story idea. The, the, the uh, directors and, and writers and would look at that and go, okay, you know, we can do it. You got, you got to remember Gelbart wrote jokes for Bob Hope. I mean, and, 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 and was, you know, he, he was there during, uh, Korea, I think, he, no, he, 
Yeah, he may have been with Bob Hope on one of his trips over there. And that was one of the things that people wanted to have as the last show, is that Bob Hope shows up and sings Thanks for the Memory. That was one of the ideas that they wanted to do, uh, you know, with it, you know, ending and everything. Art was submitted to them. I don't think that ever crossed the actual people involved in the show to do that. But yes, I think they held true. I think they... Some of it, the timeline of it isn't quite right. They don't want Levifed and, you know, but for the most part, yes. Uh, the other thing the studio didn't want, they didn't want all the blood and guts like you had from the Maybe. the movie. Yeah, and, and while they didn't have a lot of it, the only thing I question the one time I watch is Hawkeye doing the CPR. It's the most ridiculous looking CPR I've ever seen in my entire life. No one would have done CPR like that in the 1950s. <laughs> but they, you know, pounding the chest, very commonly done. Cardiac needles into the heart with adrenaline? Yes. All that stuff. And I think Dishel, Walter Dishel, who was the medical advisor, you know, was good about making sure that they, you know, they stayed accurate to it. You got to remember, too, that they had to fight with the Army a little bit about how things were presented. Anytime you deal with the military, they want to make sure that the image is okay. The biggest problem they had, though, was the network. They, you know, while, you know, they were fighting the Koreans, Gelbard and, and, and those folks were fighting the network executives to make this show what it is. And they fought all the time. You know, the one story I like is they couldn't use the word virgin in the show. And it was said, no, in the very next episode, Gelbart wrote into it that one of the soldiers came in was from the Virgin Islands. That's brilliant. I mean, <laughs> you know, Gelbart wasn't willing to give up. And, and a lot of writers might have said, okay, you know, I, I'm tired of this. He said, no, we, this is the story that needs to be told. So they, they would do stuff like that to make sure that you and I, you know, got the best performance. And I think we see that with the actors. We see that with the, with the crew and everybody. They didn't realize the impact that they were going to have. They just wanted to do the best show possible. And I don't think any of them would have ever thought there would be, you know, mash t-shirts and mash reunions and mash beer and mash, you know, liquor and all this. I don't think any, they ever anticipated it. And maybe that's true in a lot of TV shows. But they were somewhat humble about a lot of this with regard because nobody expected it you know you got to remember that and I think I was just telling you this and, and I didn't realize it goodbye so long and farewell was getting $450,000 for a 30 second commercial I think if you amen, I mean amen. Yeah, yeah. no, you you're fine. Uh, I think if you adjust to the numbers, it's still one of the most watched television programs in the history of television. The the last episode, correct? Yeah, there's no question. And that was originally written to be a two hour episode, but there was too much in it, and all of a sudden, I can't cut this stuff. It's too good, so it ended up being you know two and a half hours. But yeah, you're talking more money than more people watched it than Super Bowls. I mean, for that at that time, it's incredible. It's absolutely amazing. And it's one of the best final episodes that ever existed. In fact, when you see lists of the best finales in television history, more and more television's coming out now. We're in the golden age of television, I would say. Television's never been like it is today. That episode will always stand firm as how you do a finale for a show. And also to be clear, MASH did not get canceled. They stopped. They said, look, we're going to do one more season, and that is it. That only happens to a show like MASH or like Friends or like The Office where it's, it's so good that it's like, okay, we, we have to step away. We can't do this forever because I think as Alda has said, it sullies the brand. We have to end on a good note. I think that Alda even said they told all the stories that they needed to tell. They explored the characters the best that they could. 
everything does have to come to an end. And there's no better ending than that chopper taking off and the rock formation of goodbye. That That is absolutely true. And I think a lot of shows, because of the money aspect, keep going longer because they know people will watch them just because they're faithful, not because the show's good. And MASH, the actors, the, the people involved in it said, we're not going to do that. We're going to leave when we're at the best because that's how we want to be remembered. And that's a sign of their professionalism. Rather than say, oh, we can go one more year. We can make more money. And, and the actor said, no, we're not going to do that. We have, we have refined this thing in such a way that we don't want to mess it up. And they did. And that last season was one of the more powerful seasons that they had. It's one of the best seasons. Not just that show, but that whole last season. Because they, they started to bring things together. They were starting to tie things up. And they left us, for the most part, we have some things we don't know about, but they did try to bring it as much together as they possibly could. And, uh, and to do that in two and a half hours is you know kind of amazing. And you're right, though. Season 11, they do start laying the groundwork so that you can have that last episode but that's the last episode you can't do without 10 years, 11 years ahead of it. You have to earn those emotional beats. You have to earn those character moments. And you don't get that if you don't know those characters like you know your own family. One thing that I take away from MASH and will always take away from MASH is the power of humor. And no matter what you're looking in the face, if you can laugh at it, if you can make jokes about it, and if you can joke with your friends about it the worst things that happen to you that's my catharsis in the show and it always will be and and sydney says that he said that's what keeps these people going is this sense of humor that's what keeps their ability to do what they do at the level that they do it going is to be able to laugh at themselves and he talks about that in the most serious times even sydney will crack a joke or he'll sneak something in there because he was able to see it from that viewpoint but even Sydney, you know, lost people. And he points that out to, you know, to, to Father Mulcahy. He says, you know, I, I lose a mind. And Mulcahy says, you know, I lose a soul. So they were all dealing with lots of losses all the time. And, and I think that's what, that's what you and I as audience members felt was that sadness at loss. Because loss always, you know, in, instills sadness. But at the same time, they were able to do and wrap something else around it that made it humorous to go yeah this is serious but we're going to keep going because tomorrow is going to be a better day tomorrow it's going to be different and there is going to be some something we can you know laugh about before we wrap here i want to ask you and you don't i'm not going to hold you to this what are some of your favorite episodes in fact we have people listening to the show that i promise you have never seen mash have never been exposed to it I don't think it translates to the millennials as well as it translated to my generation. And not only from a humor perspective, but you can go back to some of those episodes. If you want to learn how to write jokes, people, watch how Alan Alda delivers lines. And that is how I learn. And I listen to myself on recording when I'm editing this stuff. And I even hear it in my own delivery, things I've stolen from you, things I steal from Alan Alda. You, you, you learn things from that. So if you want to learn how joke writing works... This is the show to watch. But what are, if you were going to name a couple episodes, if, if someone had never seen the show before, where would you have them? Where'd you have them watch? I guess one of the early episodes, I think it's in the first year, in fact, is one of my favorite episodes, and that's Deal Me Out. That has got to be 
one of my m- most favorite episodes. There's so many. When you're talking about 250 shows. It's hard. It's hard. But that is an excellent episode. Uh, I can tell you one of my the worst episodes, I think, was the one about the gold. I think that's one of the worst episodes where they convince Frank that he can find gold. That one was terrible. <laughs> that was horrible. Uh, I'm trying to remember what that one's called. I know what you're talking about. Yes. Uh, you know, the Tuttle episode is a classic. Because, again, it talks about the humor of it but also the tragedy of it. The fact that we have to create a character in order to get what we need. We have to do this. I think any of those episodes that involve, because after spending you know 20 years on active duty, there's a lot of truth to what they did. I mean, in order to get things, you have to be deceptive about it. You in, To get supplies like you need to get them, you have to do certain kinds of things. And, you know, Radar and Klinger were brilliant at that, but so was everybody else. Potter was good at it. And so, you know, those episodes. So, you know, the Tuttle one, Deal Me Out is one. Oh, God, that's a tough questionnaire because it's like, you know, what's your favorite song? I mean, it's hard because there's so many. And then the serious ones are good, too. I mean, the last episode, obviously. I mean, because... It had everything in it. Uh, Rainbow Bridge. Is oh, one of my Rainbow favorites. Bridge is a, is a great one too. Uh, the one where they bug out and they have to they take over the house of prostitution. Yeah. <laughs> that and Clinger has to sell all or has to give away all his dresses so they can trade for the. I mean, any of those ones uh, as new characters are you know brought in the uh, the one where Potter plays the crazy general is a is a is a good steal. Uh, General Steele. I mean, that's that's a good because again, you see that craziness, you know, that did happen, and and uh, and again, even the and, and they don't have to be all the funny ones, you know, the, the even the more serious ones. If people you know can deal with that, some of them I didn't like that were the serious ones, and I think we agreed that the one with the dream sequences, you know, that one kind of, you know, is is not one. But if if I were to watch them. You know, I would. That, those would be kind of the ones I would start. Deal me out is one of my favorite episodes. So, House Arrest. I think if I was going to do a top ten, House Arrest would be on. I there. step in. I go stuff. out. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Where Hawkeye punches punches Frank. Yeah, and it's so, you know to ask that question, I have to go through my head here and think about. It. There's just so many of them. How about you? You like House Arrest? I know you like Deal Me Out. House Arrest, Deal Me Out is is great. Um, I'm trying to think of actual episode titles again. The one where. Where Hawkeye does the the appendicitis is one that really always sticks with me because of how flawed he is. I mean, I can go through the seasons though, and I don't really. It's not a show where I skip episodes. I guess I like Rainbow Bridge because that song is a song Amit and I will always sing after a couple drinks. That oh Tokyo, I I like that. The first episode of season four where Trapper leaves and Hawkeye and BJ meet for the first time. I know that it's it's an origin episode, and I know it's kind of not fair to pick that, but their friendship, Hawkeye doesn't even care about BJ. He doesn't even look him in the eye when he shakes his hand for the first time because he's so distressed that his best friend is gone. By the end of that episode, Hawkeye and BJ are at a bar drinking, a fight breaks out, and you can just see them in that moment. They become friends they bond over the the surgery they bond over everything but what united them was the trip back and they were under fire and they had to save those people and and bj gets his first exposure to what a battle injury and does and he, he ends up vomiting on the side of the road right because he can't deal with that we also had the introduction of corporal captain as a rank in the military and that's brilliant <laughs> because they carry it so well in the bar oh yeah this isn't we're trying out this new rank corporal captain how do you like it well i don't like it at all that, I mean, that'd be one for no <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's it's absolutely brilliant. And you're right. They're 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 at, at such a distance when they pull up to the airport there at Kimpo, and they are so united after just. But but look what went on during that very short journey, that two hour journey or whatever it was back to to the mass unit was. BJ experienced things, and Hawkeye watched him experience, and Hawkeye helped him get through it. And that was, you know, that was, I think that was important for them to bond that way. Yeah, that's one of my favorite episodes. I really, not that I don't like Trapper, but I relate more to the, to the BJ character. And then you have the introduction of Charles the following season, I think at the beginning, after Frank goes AWOL. And I'll never forget, uh, should we start hating him now and just beat the Christmas rush when, <laughs> when, and you got to remember, BJ coming there like he did was very typical of the doctors that went to Korea. Right out of school, right out of residency, boom, they were gone. 26, 28 years old, they were they were in Korea because the the need was you know such like that. So he kind of epitomizes the typical. You know, Hawkeye was a little bit older, you know, and, and obviously the actor was, but you know, the, the, he epitomizes who that who that doctor was. And and I and I don't know what the name of that episode is, but yeah, I would. I guess if you start mentioning them, they're all going to come up. That's and, called Welcome to Korea. Welcome to Korea. Season yeah. four, episode one is Welcome to Korea. I do know that. You know, even Charles arriving, you know, he he loses at cribbage, and he smarts off to the guy, and boom, you're going to what? <laughs> and that was done. People move around all the time because of you know what happens, and 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 that's true even in today's military. And Charles was the only character I would say that comes from really a place of privilege. I, w- I think about Hawkeye and BJ, Margaret, they're middle class, regular, hardworking American people. Charles is rich. His family is, is very well off. Charles had every advantage given to him, yet he still ends up in the same place as everyone else. And the most heartbreaking is the band. And Charles's love of music is explored through the entire time you see Charles. In fact, I'd say it's it, it's like Hawkeye's alcoholism. It's Charles' love of of music and he trains that band and they're playing and then they die. Well, and and, the, and when they you know they introduce him right all, right away with all the tr- pranks and stuff and they put the snake in his bed and at the end of the episode, he's put a snake in in Hawkeye's bed and he goes and Hawkeye's yelling, he goes, "Hmm, quiet, Mozart." <laughs> I mean, Yes, I mean you. You get and, and, it. Yeah, the camera cuts to him, and you see the little smirk because yeah. you know it was was him. You, you and you know he is going to be at least better than some of them in some instances than they are. They're not going to get the best of him. You know right away this is not Frank. You know immediately this is not Frank Burns. That 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 Winchester is going to be a character to be dealt with, and they're gonna and they're gonna have to deal with him because he is smart. He he does have wealth. He comes from polish. He comes from a whole different you know. Uh, uh, social economic background that these other people have never experienced. And he brings to it a sense of, oh, I guess class. Maybe that's the best way. He, he, he brings a sense of class to the Hawkeye character that I think helps Hawkeye to a certain extent. I think that his character changes Hawkeye. I think that's the only direction you can go after Frank. You have to have someone that is competition to Hawkeye because Frank let's be honest, never was competition. And even Frank in the movie was kind of the same way. There was He was the joke. He well, was and, the one that they didn't want there. And he disappears really quickly. He I does. Mean, Robert he goes du- crazy. Yeah, Robert Duvall, you know, the, the actor that played him, you know, disappears very, very quickly. Um, 
they get the best of Winchester sometimes, but Winchester gets the best of them too. I mean, uh, many, many times. Uh, you know, even, even BJ gets the best of Hawkeye when he does the joke that never happened, the prank right. that never occurred. And Hawkeye, Hawkeye becomes paranoid. He's sleeping in a little fenced-in thing in the compound so nobody can sneak up on him because of all the jokes. And all the time, it was BJ. Uh, you know, filling the water thing so Frank jumps into it when he yells air raid. I, I mean, all these things. I mean, and BJ, again, BJ comes across as kind of naive and maybe a little bit, but BJ's devious. I mean, he's in a fun way, not in a, in a, in a mean way, but he's devious. And I think all of the characters bring a unique aspect based on their backgrounds, based on their own experiences, based on who they are, that makes this ensemble cast worked so well and they did work well i mean you know Klinger was a a day player for years and years and years he was not even meant to be a character and you know after the first times he was in there he said what's with the guy with the women's clothes we gonna have him back on and the network started asking that and then they were getting letters about the and here was a guy who took a walk-on part and made it into a full because you know his name doesn't appear in the credits until what six seven years i mean he's it's long into it Right, it is. Uh, so, you know, that says something about the actor and what he did with a basically a a character that was a minor character. Uh, even though I think Sydney is with him in the first year or the first episode, first or second episode, because he's coming down to get him out of the service. Right, because Claire wants out, and here the guy that wants out of the service stays in Korea because of love. Because of love, exactly right. Yeah, so I, I would start from the beginning, honestly. If you've never seen MASH the movie, start there because that's a good way to kind of see how the characters in the show change. Now, there's no Colonel Potter in MASH the movie. It's Henry, and it's a different Henry. In fact, Radar is the only, not only the actor that transitions between the movie and the show, but the only character that stays the same person, if you will. Radar is Radar in the movie, and Radar is Radar in the show. And Gary Berghoff plays the role in both. Nothing else in the movie translates really over to the television show. In fact, you mentioned Spearchucker shows up as a character a couple episodes, and then he's gone and never heard from again. The uh, the Duke never Duke makes yeah never makes it from the movie to the to the TV show. And I think it's because that character was too similar to Hawkeye, and that's you 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 didn't need two of them, if you will, because you already had Trapper, uh, the Mulcahy character. You know, was a different character from the pilot than it was to the first. It was a different actor. Right, right. So they made transitions, and uh, they tried to figure out, you know, and Hawkeye Hawkeye was basically hired like a couple of days before the scene was supposed to shoot uh, because it wasn't working out. And uh, and then he came into it, and boom, you know, uh, Alan Alda was a stage actor in New York. And getting him to get out of New York was was a hard sell because he didn't want to— because he knew he was going to be away from his family, you know, traveling to the to the West Coast. So it went through a lot. Uh, it, it, it did. And, but I think it's a show. I've watched it recently. It holds up today. And you can't say that about a lot of things from the past. They're great when you're there. But when you go back and revisit them a, a couple years later or 10 years later, you go back and do these things. It doesn't hold up. MASH certainly does hold up as a television show, even if you're not watching it as a reflection of what society was at the time, 
a reflection of where we are as America as the time, because that's certainly what the show is. And like you said, it's not Korea they're talking about. It's Vietnam that they're they're painting the picture of. But that kind of commentary, you don't get the shows you have today if MASH didn't exist. They paved the way to do television that was not only hilarious, but also smart. And also there's a lot of episodes when you turn them off, they make you think. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do. You said making people laugh, making people cry. I will put making people think. If you have all three of those things, that's a good television show. And I think the fact that I know people and have talked to people who will watch an episode and they will go back and watch it again and go, I didn't see that the first time. I didn't care. And it's not, it's not the subtle kinds of things. It's like you said, the thought. It's the message that came out of it. That's, that wasn't even there before. The show didn't change at all. Again, it's me. And I think that's what I kind of alluded to at the beginning is I can still watch the show and get something out of it because I'm in a different place than I was 40-something years ago. And I can go, yeah, all right. That's what that's what that means to me now. And certainly there's an interpretive aspect, you know, to any of this. MASH is the first show that I realized that when you're watching something syndicated, they cut another minute and a half out of it in order to put more commercials in. When you watch the episodes on DVD, Blu-ray, VHS, however you get them, there's scenes that I've never seen before. Now, granted, I've seen them all now, but at the time... When I was watching syndicated MASH, I would go back and watch the episodes in a minute, and I would be like, where's the extra minute? We'd even take notes, where's the extra minute at? Because they always cut something out of it. I think you and I talked the other day about how I think MASH is 26 minutes, 25 minutes is a normal episode. Right. Television shows now are 17 minutes long. 30-minute shows are 17 minutes long. That just shows you how far that it's come. Is It's all about the advertising now, and it's why Netflix television, one of the reasons, it's dying. And I would say to I would say to people I would say to the listeners that you that you have and any and anybody who who hears this is if you've watched a television show on network at some point go back and watch it on DVD because you're going to see things and things are going to happen that you didn't realize that are as much a part of the show I mean they can cut things but it's always missing always missing and and like you said you can go back and go oh wow. I didn't know that that happened because they can't make the transition very well when they take out, you know, a minute or two minutes. I mean, two minutes is a lot in a half hour show. Now, when you watch it on streaming services, all of the footage is in there. DVD, of course, Blu-ray, definitely in there. But when you watch it streaming, they don't have the commercials either. It's I'm talking like the Nick at Night or is it the Hallmark Channel that owns it now? Not owns it, but owns the rights to it now yes. where you watch it. I don't. I think those are still cut up. They are. So if you want a pure version of MASH, DVD, watch it streaming. I, it's either on Hulu or Netflix. I think it's Hulu. And that's a good thing because people can do that nowadays. You don't have to go and buy the DVD. You can watch it on a streaming network, and you're going to get the full show. And I think that's how shows need to be watched if you've watched them before because you're going to get a different – a slight, maybe, maybe not a grand you know, difference in it, but you're going to see a difference in the, in the show. No question. Certainly. Well, we are well over time. Not that I don't want to to keep going here, but it was so good to sit down with you, Dad, and talk about MASH. It's been really good to be here. I want to tell all of our listeners, you're probably going to hear this in January, but Merry Christmas because I'm sitting next to a Christmas tree at my parents' house. I got my dad to drink beer yesterday that he liked. That's a, a Hollis family first at, at 42 years, which has been wonderful. It's been great being here on the island. The food has been wonderful. I often joke that if there is a heaven 
I hope that at the end of every night I get to raid my parents' kitchen drunk because it's my favorite thing to do in the entire world. It's just really good to be here. So thank you again. I don't know what we're going to do next year. Not that I feel like we've covered everything, but this is an episode I really wanted to do because the show means a lot to you and the show means a lot to me. And it means different things to both of us. You were there when it started. It's something that I gravitated towards later. So thank you for joining us today in your bit cave, if you will. Uh, and, and thank you for having me. Eric, thanks for having me. And, you know, as you get to be my age, I, th- I think it was Groucho Marx that says, it's nice to be asked to go anywhere. So it's, it's, nice to, it's nice that you feel like I can offer something to you. And I hope that, you know, listeners, that, you know, this was something that you can get into. Because I know for us, for Eric and I, this is a personal kind of a journey. But hopefully we've provided you at least some way to, if you've not seen the show, to watch it. If you have watched it, watch some of the episodes again and, and, and kind of get maybe that same feeling about it or, or your own feeling about it that, you know, that we had from our experience with it. And I hope you guys enjoyed our end of the year episodes. Those are always my favorites to do uh, throughout the year. I love talking to you guys about our favorite video games and our favorite pop culture. So I hope you really enjoyed that. From the Hilton Head Island Bit Cave, my father, Dr. Greg Hollis. I am Eric G. Hollis, and we're the pros from Dover.